Um, our scripture this morning uh, comes from 1 Corinthians 18, and we're in a series on 1 Corinthians. And I'm really, I'm only going to get through verse 25. So I'm just going to, I'm going to come back next week to these other verses. And so hear God's word to us this morning from 1 Corinthians verse 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is folly. Folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, uh, show us your wisdom this morning in the folly of your cross. Help us to apply the cross to our hearts, apply the cross to our lives and to our understanding of this age. May we um, be people who have cross-shaped identities and imaginations and deepen in us um, our faith and hope and belief and who you are and what you have done through the cross, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me recall for you the main argument from 1 Corinthians, which we began last week, and it's found in verse 10, where Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So the main purpose of 1 Corinthians is to uh, address the many divisions within the congregation and to call the church to unity and to address the ways, the various issues that are, are tearing them apart. And for Paul, and, and this is really what gets developed in this section, um, divisions, he wants to go to the root of the divisions. And the root of the divisions is worldliness. <laughs> um, a divided church is a worldly church. And what Paul does to constructively ad address the divisions is to get at the root of their identity by contrasting the cross and God's way with the cross with the wisdom of the world. So that's, that's a, a central argument of this, this section here. Now last week I didn't talk a lot about um, the city of Corinth as a context in, in the first century and what it was like. But I want to take a few moments just to tell you a little bit about the city of Corinth that Paul is writing to here, because I think it really helps us understand and sympathize with the situations and the conflict there. Um, Corinth 
uh, was originally a Greek uh, city-state, um, kind of like Athens or Sparta. It's very close to both of those cities. Um, for much of its early history, it was a Greek city-state, but in 146 BCE, before the Common Era, uh, it was completely destroyed and leveled by the Romans. And it lay completely unrebuilt and leveled for 100 years, until in uh, 43 uh, BCE, um, the Emperor Julius Caesar had it rebuilt. And so when Paul is writing to uh, the Corinthians, it's in the mid-40s, probably like 46 or 47, this city has only really been around again for 100 years, which in the ancient world is like no time at all. It's no time at all. And, and the city of Corinth is located on an isthmus, which is a little strip of land between two bodies of water. And this four-mile isthmus was a major hub for travel, both land travel north-south and also sea travel from east to west because, you know, to the east, it, or the west rather, is, is Italy, and to, to the east is, is Asia. And so it was a treacherous kind of trip um, weather-wise to go all the way down around Greece and come the other way. So, um, you know, uh, sailors and commerce folks would just portage their goods across the isthmus. So what this meant, though, that Corinth was this bustling center of commerce in the ancient world. Uh, but it was also kind of a new city by ancient standards. Um, somebody, one, one scholar has described the city of Corinth as, like if you took a blender, he doesn't use a blender, but uh, you took a blender and you stuck Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and New York City and spun it together, you'd kind of have Corinth, right? So it's, it's a place that's very focused on commerce and getting ahead. It was also a major place where freedmen uh, were relocated from Rome. So a freedman was a person who used to be a slave and got their, their freedom, um, but the Romans didn't want them all in Rome, and so they located many of them to the Corinth. And, you know, Corinth, there's a lot of economic opportunity there, right? So you have this culture in where um, people are trying to move up the social ladder, if you will, which is very, very hard to do in the ancient world, especially in old cities where there's a very defined, you know, class and structure and aristocracy. Uh, but Corinth is this place where there's all this opportunity. But it was also a place where there's lots of, of, of arts. It's a very religious place. There's just so much going on there, right? Um, it's a very pluralistic city as well. There's, there's all kinds of different, again, whenever you have trade and commerce, you know, you're going to have a lot of ethnic diversity, a lot of social class diversity. And so this is the context of Corinth, right? That it is... Um, it is a, a strange mixture of a lot of wealth and ambition and spirituality and pleasure. And, and um, it really, I think, of all the cities of the, of the Mediterranean world, perhaps Corinth is most similar to a kind of a modern American city in, in its urban environment with its focus on commerce, its individualism, its sort of free-spirited morality, um, and its ambition. And so when you look at the history of the church um, throughout history, and you look at the history of schism and division in the church, the conflicts that the church always have is reflected within the cultures that they inhabit. We're creatures of culture. We're creatures of this world, and there's no getting away from that. Um, 
But the sad reality is, is that, you know, we as the church often mirror the various conflicts that our, the broader culture is having. And, and when we do this, we become like the culture. We're worldly, right? So that's the, the broader context of, of this letter. And in order to, to address the divisions and actually to bring about healing, Paul seeks to strike at the root of the problem, which is their worldliness, but he does it by drawing a contrast between the wisdom of the world and the folly of the cross. Um, now, before I, I talk about um, the worldliness aspect, I, I just want to make a, a clarification. Um, whenever we talk about worldly in the Bible, in the, in the negative sense, um, don't think material. <laughs> don't think like creation or things or stuff. Worldliness in the Bible as a negative category is not a material category, it's a spiritual category. Again, I think, you know, especially in our culture downstream 2,000 years of human history, you know, we, we talk about worldliness and, and there's a way that, that sometimes that gets applied to things that shouldn't be. But worldly is a spiritual category in the Bible. Worldliness is, is a pattern of thinking. It's a way of being oriented to the world and within the world that is, not, that is pointed away from God. Not towards God, but away from God. And so the Corinthians are very worldly. Their patterns of thinking and behavior are reflective of a take on the world in which God is, is not present, or God, a, a misperception of who God is. And so what Paul does is he, he brings the message of the cross to bear on this reality. So what is, what is, uh, the message of the cross. Now, what Paul does here in his reflection on the cross is somewhat unique. He presents the cross as an apocalyptic event that tears through the heart of history. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The cross Paul presents as this event, as a dividing line that separates the world into two groups, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And these two groups correspond to two different ages. The old age, which is passing away, and which is perishing. And those who belong to the old age are perishing. And a new age, which is yet to come, but that came those who are being saved belong to this age which is to come. God has rendered judgment on the old age through the cross. And the cross marks the beginning of the new age. And yet it's yet, it's yet to fully emerge and become present. And so what this means, though, as Christians, Paul is locating our lives in this place of tension. We live in the overlap of two ages. The old age and the age to come. And as Christians, our identity belongs to this new age, which is yet to fully manifest itself. And yet we live in the overlap of these ages, right? 
And um, our identities are, should always be marked by tension. I think this is a really important point to just reflect on practically speaking. Um, arguably, the biggest sign of worldliness in your life or my life is when we do not feel tension between our identities as Christians and the variety of relationships and affiliations we have within this world. If you don't feel tension between your self-identity, your understanding as a Christian, and the world that you inhabit, most likely you are worldly. And, you know, I want to make this point because I think a lot of our politics and a lot of our instincts is to want to reduce tension. Even Christians do this. You know, we're fighting for a Christian America where I don't have to feel like I don't belong. I mean, I hear this from Christians a lot of times, this sense of frustration that, you know, we don't have a place in this culture anymore. You're like, oh, okay. Did Jesus? (laughs) The reality is, is whether you live in a Christianized nation or not externally, the cross as a reality cannot be assimilated by that culture. To be a Christian is to have this sense of tension all the time. We reflected on this at length in the book of 1 Peter. It's what it means to be an exilic people. And when we try to reduce the tension and remove it, we become worldly, even though we might still be externally very Christian. This is a very hard thing for us. It's very hard for us to to live in this tension, but I think it's a very important, um, important thing for us to embrace. Paul wants us to know that the cross is a fundamental tension and contradiction with the world and its wisdom. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The word folly is moria, which is where we get our word moron or moronic. I mean, what Paul is saying, and I thought about naming this sermon God's Moron, but I couldn't quite, you know, the, I mean, that is the idea, that is the, the, the connotation of the language that Paul is using here, is that the cross is idiotic and moronic and stupid to the world. Why do you think, why, why do you, should you think and expect the world to embrace it and laud it and prize you as a Christian? The cross exists in contradiction to the wisdom of the world. It stands in the middle of history as a sign of judgment. And so having a cross-shaped identity in one way or another, whether you live in a Christianized Bible Belt part of America or the world, or you live in a secularized, urban, progressive environment, your identity, if you're taking the cross seriously, is going to be one that is in fundamental tension. It's what it means to live in the overlap of two ages. This is part of what it means to live in faith. It's to not feel like you belong fully, like you don't really fit. This was Jesus' own experience. But Paul um, sets this folly or this moronic character of the cross even more in contrast with the wisdom of the world. Um, it's worth reflecting a little bit more deeply on what Paul has in mind when he talks about the wisdom of the world. Now, he's not denying that human beings can learn and understand about the world. I mean, Paul would be all on board, I think, with 
scientific efforts and medical efforts to come up with a vaccine to stop a plague. This is not what Paul has in mind here. The wisdom of the world that he has in mind, again, is of a more spiritual nature. It is a form of reasoning and judgment that asserts itself in independence of God. That's essentially what wisdom of the world is. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, we encounter this category of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And what is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is the understanding that God is God and I am a creature. That God is the first principle. That he is, he is the potter, that I am the clay. That he defines reality, I don't define reality. This is the fear of the Lord. And the opposite of the fear of the Lord um, would be a form of wisdom that asserts its own judgments, its own independence, its own assessments, and knowledge of the world and reality Um, independently of God or even over against God. It's what happens in the Garden of Eden. When Eve takes of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God had said, if you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. But she refused to take God at his word. And the serpent, of course, you know, sums it all up, what's really going on. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What, is it, what, what, what did it symbolically mean to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It meant that we took to ourselves the right that only belongs to God, which is the right to define good and evil. That's what we do all the time. That's the wisdom of the world. We take to ourselves the right to define what is good and what is evil. This is the essence of the wisdom of the world. And in order to make his point, what Paul does here is interesting. He He quotes from Isaiah 29. Um, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now it's helpful to understand a little bit of the context. This is just sacred reading um, from today. But let me give you a little bit of the context. In this chapter, Isaiah is given an oracle of judgment from God against the city of Jerusalem. The city is about to be attacked. It's under threat from Assyria. And the religious and political leaders, God said, you know, gave them instructions. Do not form an alliance with Egypt. Don't go down to Egypt again, right? Because they're looking for a political alliance in order to protect them against the Syrians. And God says, don't do that. And yet, the religious leaders of Israel reject this wisdom and say, no, the smart thing to do, the realistic thing to do is for us to align ourselves with Egypt. And this will uh, provide us some protection from attack and allow us to survive. And, and here's what Isaiah says, what the Lord says through Isaiah. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Now, Israel was destroyed (laughs) by Assyria and then later Babylon. See, the contrast here that Isaiah and both Paul are making is between human talk and God's action. See, human wisdom is just talk. We claim to know and we claim to understand 
with a sense of utter authority and confidence in our judgments that we make about the world and history and God and what's going to happen. But it's just talk. (laughs) It's talk. And we know talk is cheap, right? But God's actions are real. And God's actions in history will shut the mouths of the wise, smooth, eloquent speech. God has the final say, and he often never even needs to use words because in the end, all the human talk and all the action that corresponds to that comes undone. Human wisdom is nothing more than talk, but God's wisdom asserts itself in the world not through fine-sounding words and speech and eloquence and logic, but through events, in particular through the startling event of the cross. The cross is God's talk. The cross is God's talk. It is God's speech. It's God's wisdom. And to the world, it's like Babel. It's like nonsense. It's actually, in that aspect of that word, moria is insanity, madness. Makes no sense at all. See, when the world looks at the cross, what they see is weakness, failure, shame, humiliation. They don't see power, glory, wisdom, knowledge. When they look at the cross, they don't see a plan for success. They don't see a winning strategy. What they see is folly, idiocy, stupidity, insanity. The cross really, if we're honest, is incomprehensible on the terms of human wisdom. And so Paul, I mean, think about it. Who could have ever dreamed up the cross as a way to save the world? Like, who would have, I mean, who could ever have dreamed that up? Is that a plan that you would have ever made? Could any human being ever have hatched this? You know, let's let God's son die a humiliating and shameful death. And this is the basis of God's power and saving might in the world. I mean, the problem for us as Christians in 2021 is that we... We're, we're over 2,000 years downstream of the cross, and we have managed in rather sophisticated ways to domesticate it and to tame it. But yet, oftentimes, what we've done is just relegate the cross out of our lives in various ways and kept it at bay. And Paul wants us to know that the cross comes into our life with like an an apocalyptic event that just tears things apart. We would never have come up with a cross. It is madness and nonsense to the human mind. Now, Paul's simple proposition is that worldly wisdom leads us away from God. The wisdom of this world does not lead us towards God. I mean, we have thousands and thousands of years of human history to look at, and it has not brought us closer to God. Um, but the cross leads us towards God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it was pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Greeks. Now Paul notes here two different expressions of human wisdom. Um, One is in the form of signs, 
and one is the form of wisdom. So Jews seek signs and, or look for signs, and the Greeks look for and seek wisdom. And these, these, you know, when we look at them, they are two different expressions of how we and our wisdom seek to assert ourselves in the world. So I want to reflect on them briefly with you. Ancient, in ancient um, Greek society uh, was famous for wisdom, Sophia sophistication of knowledge and philosophers. Even to this day, if you have a philosophy class, history of philosophy class, you're going to read Greek philosophers. Um, Socrates and Plato and, and Heraclitus and Parmenides, Aristotle. Um, ancient Greece had the distinguished philosophical tradition. Um, and in Roman society and in Greek society, this philosophical tradition was highly esteemed. It was like the academy, um, but I'd say um, even more status and authority than the academy we experience today, um, that such that the f philosophers in their various schools really shaped almost in a religious landscape of, of people. And this is very clearly at work in, um, in Corinth. Um, and the Greek orientation to life that was reflected in a lot of Roman society was that salvation was acquired through superior knowledge and wisdom. Salvation can be acquired through superior knowledge and wisdom. I think if, if the ancient world were today, like this society, all these philosophers and people, they'd have their own YouTube channels and they'd be influencers and thought leaders um, and blogs and, and they would have like, a, a million people following them on Twitter. Um, that, that, that would be it, right? Um, and the Corinthians, of course, are very sort of taken with these, these ancient influencers and thought leaders and philosophers. And, and they're very much comparing Paul and the other apostles to these. And, and in fact, the attraction to Apollos uh, was likely that of, of all the apostles, Apollos was, was arguably the, the most refined in, in the sort of Greek philosophical sense and, you know, well-spoken and that. So people really liked him and Paul was kind of vulgar and unsophisticated in his speech. And so another example of this is when Paul goes to Athens, which is a mere 50 miles away from Corinth. He goes to Athens. Um, he, go he gets up into the center of the city, the Areopagus, and he preaches as a philosopher of sorts. He's framing the gospel in philosophical terms. He talks about the resurrection and this man, Jesus, and he literally gets laughed off stage. He is mocked. And the people are like, they're just like, this is ridiculous. See, the idea of Jesus, the Messiah, dying on a cross and being raised from the dead is just, it's folly. It's, it's moronic in the eyes of the Greeks. Now, the Greek, Greek way says knowledge and wisdom is the way of salvation. And I, I think that even though our context is very different, I think this is still very powerful in our own context. Um, scientifically speaking, we, we put so much hope and, and significance in the power of science and technology to understand and to solve the problems of this world. We worship science. And here, don't get me, I'm not trying to say that science is bad, but it, we often relate to it that it can deliver more than it can. And so science, especially in more uh, secular cultures, you know, um, has, a stat has, has almost semi-divine status. 
And it's, I think it, it's reflected in the more personal level in the therapeutic culture, which is salvation is through self-knowledge. I come to find who my true self is, and I love that self, right? <laughs> and then I find salvation, right? This is the Greek way, and, but again, this cannot be comprehended by the cross. It cannot, the cross cannot be assimilated to these ways of thinking. So there's salvation through knowledge of the Greeks, but for the Jews, they looked for signs. They looked for signs. This is another way of seeking God and seeking to wisdom in the world and independence from God. Um, for the Jews, what does it mean that they looked for signs? This is a specific reference to the Messiah in the Jewish expectation of the coming Messiah. The signs that the Jews wanted um, the signs that the Jews wanted to see were, were proofs of the Messiah's power and glory. Right? These are the things that they would associate with the true, true Messiah. An exercise of power and glory that would ultimately um, express itself in political terms of liberating Israel from domination, centuries of domination by foreign rulers whether it's Persia or Babylon or Rome, the Messiah would come with glory and power like David, and he would triumph over the enemies of God, and he would restore the kingdom to its glory. And so the Messiah was expected to show himself with, with power and glory. And so when Jesus comes, he actually gives a lot of signs. He heals the sick, he casts out demons, he even raises the dead, he feeds the 5,000. And yet, this never seems to satisfy the people, especially the religious leaders, and they keep asking for signs, no matter what Jesus does. Because it seems as if his signs don't have enough glory. Um, in the Gospels, um, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees and the scribes again ask Jesus for a sign, and this is what he says after they ask him for a sign. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The cross is the sign that Jesus gives. And it's not exactly a sign of power and glory, is it? It confounds the wisdom of Israel. So in the Gospels, um, there is this theme, right? of people asking again and again for a sign. And it's, I think, important to understand that as Jesus identifies it, the request for a sign is a manifestation of unbelief. And I think it's helpful just briefly to reflect on this dynamic. And it helps us understand why the wisdom of the world fails us and why the wisdom of the world pushes us not closer to God, but further away from God. Um, there's a way that the, what the cross does in the folly of God is it unmasks human unbelief. It unmasks human unbelief. What, is, what are we doing when we ask for a sign? What, what are we doing when we ask for a sign? What we're doing is we're asking God to make his case on our terms. That's the essence of sign making, as saying, God, show me. At the heart of, and this is, and you have to see how asking for a sign or testing God is it comes from a place of unbelief, a fundamental posture of unbelief. God, I want you to prove yourself on my terms. 
God, you have to play according to my rules, my understanding of the universe, my grasp of things, such that my own experience becomes a first principle through which God must submit himself in order to become credible and believable. This is, again, this is what it means to put God to the test. You, you presume a position of all-knowing, that you, that you presume a position of divinity, of how the world should work and how God should act within that world. Now, this again is, as Isaiah says in chapter 29, this is like the pot talking to the potter and, tell, and acting as if he is the potter, right? It is a fundamental under, misunderstanding of the creator-creature relationship. It is disastrous. It is disastrous. And the folly of God was to respond to this destructive way of thinking and acting with the cross. See, Greeks believe that salvation is through knowledge, and Jews believe that salvation is power and glory, and it's the same for us today. We tend to be attracted to these things. We think that we can fix the world if we have enough wisdom, fix ourselves if we have enough power and strength, and that's why the wisdom of the world tends to concentrate around the, the, the accumulation of wealth and power and knowledge. And God's response is the cross. God's response is the cross. Salvation comes not through knowledge and power, but it comes through belief and through faith in the one who died for us on the cross. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So in, in close, you know, <clears throat> the cross humbles us. And just think about how remarkable it is that we as creatures want to exalt ourselves into the place of God, but God as the creator God that is all-powerful and all-knowing, what does he do? He subjects himself to become a creature and to be humbled and to die. <laughs> it's this great paradox. And this is how God chooses to save the world. And it ought to humble us. Let's, let's pray. Father, um, I struggle to even put in words <laughs> the deep meaning of the cross um, and how it applies and what good news it is for us. It is a rebuke to us in our pride and our supposed wisdom and strength and self-sufficiency. Um, it is judgment upon us and upon our age, but it also is good news if we submit to it and embrace it in faith. And so... We pray that we would embrace the cross deeply in our hearts and, and to know it as a source of true life and salvation and power in us. We thank you, Lord, that you, um, you humbled yourself and you became a servant and you died on a cross. And this is a manifestation of your love for us. Warm our hearts and um, undomesticate the cross in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.